today's message, which is titled The Advent of Real Life, um, coming from John chapter 4, 4 to 16. I'll give us a few moments to turn there, uh, or you can feel free to follow along with us on the screen. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. It's good to worship with you. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series today for Advent, where we are focusing not simply on the details of Jesus coming to earth, but on the reasons that moved him to come. It's a series where we are looking not at what happened, but why it happened. And we noticed last week that it's because Jesus came to save his people from their sin, and we're trying to get a better sense 2,000 years later, what does that mean for us? To do that, we're working our way through John chapter 4, where we find Jesus talking to a woman, and she's a woman who's trusting various things to make her life work. And we are seeing, last week we're going to continue seeing, that there are things that don't work for her. They're actually what she needs to be saved from. Last week, we saw that she's a Samaritan woman. She has some issues with morality. She's been through five different husbands, is now living with someone else. And she has been told in no uncertain terms by her community, this is your place. These are your identities. Here's how we see you. Now, these are identities that define how she and others can and cannot interact. They're identities that draw very firm lines between people, between ethnicities, between genders, between moral respectabilities. And we learn that she's been so thoroughly trained in these socially constructed identities that without even thinking about it, she just automatically sees her world through that lens, that people are Jew and Gentile, male and female, respectable and shameful. She sees the world through these identities, and she relies on them then to tell her how she should and should not respond to the person in front of her. She even reinforces this for herself and for others. And you learn that they are reliable guides for her to navigate social interactions. 
And in that sense, she trusts them, trusted them to know her place, worked hard to stay in it, even when it wasn't working, when it was cutting her off and isolating her from other people. And I hope that as you listened last week, that you started to get a sense of the heartbreak for the person underneath of the story. It's pretty ugly when you start to think through what she's been through, when you start to think through what she's done. But what's really beautiful is that Jesus does not seem to know her place, doesn't seem to know his own. He's not willing to accept that she was created to stay where other people try to put her. And so instead of leading her to that ugly place, he reached out and called her to something better, to receive the gift of God to know him. This week, we're going to see him reach out to her in a different way. He's still inviting her to more, but he changes his approach because she changes hers. Instead of continuing to trust in her place to make her life work, she turns to something else. And this something else I'm going to call innovation, something new, something where she's asking the question, what is the latest, greatest thing that this world has to offer me? Because that's what's going to save me. That's what will make my life work in a broken world. We're going to see that come out of her as Jesus keeps pressing into her life, as he's offering her something different from what she's used to. So for today, let's look at this interaction through three different uh, dimensions. First, we're going to see the nature of what God offers to people whose lives don't work. Second, we're going to see why we're willing to settle for less than what Jesus offers. And then third, we're going to see God's continued surprising invitation to us to have more. So let's dive in. First, the nature of what God offers. In this conversation, Jesus does what he often does. He takes an element out of the physical world, something that you can see, and he uses it as a metaphor. He doesn't explain that that's what he's doing. But he starts using it as a metaphor for something that you can't see, some part of the spiritual world. And this is not the first time that he's done this in the book of John. John chapter 3, the chapter earlier, Jesus was talking to a man named Nicodemus. He was a Jewish rabbi. And Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus's response is, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus, in that moment, doesn't understand that the conversation just slid out from underneath him. He's wrapped up in this very physical world, and when Jesus says he has to be born again, he says that's impossible in this world, which is actually Jesus' point. Jesus is talking about something that's impossible in the physical world to do what? To provoke him to get him to think about this whole other world, the spiritual world, that Nicodemus, this rabbi, has not thought about enough. And so Jesus talks about something he understands, that you have to be born into the physical world to help Nicodemus understand that you also have to be born into the spiritual world, that having life in the physical world doesn't automatically give you spiritual life as well, but something else has to happen in order for you to be alive spiritually. And so Jesus takes these two worlds and plays them off against each other so that Nicodemus can understand his need a little bit better. Jesus is actually going to do the same thing later in John chapter 6. There's a crowd that's been following him. He's fed them. And they're following him because they'd like to have a little bit more to eat. 
And he says to them that what they really need is bread that comes down from heaven. And they misunderstand. They think he's talking about another physical lunch. And so they say to him effectively, great, let's have it. We've got the picnic blankets. We're all set. And Jesus redirects them tells them that he's actually talking about himself, that he is the bread of life who has come down out of heaven, and that, that if they won't eat his flesh and if they won't drink his blood, then they're going to have no life in them. That he is the food that they really need. Because if all you do is eat this earthly food, you're going to end up dying. But if you eat him, you'll live forever and not die. Now what he has just said to them is just as impossible in the physical realm living eternally here, eating his flesh, that's just as impossible as entering back into your mother's womb a second time. And Jesus takes that impossibility and he uses it intentionally in order to redirect them. They are concerned with maintaining their physical lives, and he says there's something even more important. It's your spiritual life. In other words, he uses things in the world you can see to help explain the world you can't see. Shifts from the physical world to the spiritual world in order to highlight this need that someone has that they don't know that they have. And that's what he's doing with this woman in chapter 4. So he tells her, verse 10, If you knew who I was, you would have asked me and I would give you living water. That's his turn in the conversation from the purely physical to the spiritual. But just like Nicodemus, just like the crowd, she misses the turn. She is so wrapped up in the physical world that she doesn't get what Jesus is really saying to her. And we could probably cut her a little bit of slack. That term, living water, that stands out as kind of weird to us. It would not have been weird to her. 2,000 years ago, they had a distinction in her area when you talked about water. You could have stagnant water that's not moving. So, like water in a puddle, in a pond, in a jar somewhere. You could have that kind of water, or you could have living water. Living water was something that came out of a river where the water is actually moving. So when Jesus offers her living water, there's some reason that she might still be thinking, okay, we're still in the physical world here. But you don't want to give her too much credit because she does something that you and I do all the time. And what she does sets her up to misunderstand Jesus. It actually guarantees that she'll misunderstand Jesus. And that is that she makes an assumption. She assumes she knows what he's talking about. She assumes that when he says water, she and he are talking about the same kind of water. And because she assumes that what she thinks is accurate, that from out of her own perspective she's right, it never occurs to her to check with him. And so she responds to him on the basis of what she thinks, not on the basis of what he means. That's why she completely misses the point. Now why? Why does she make that assumption? Why does she think that she knows what he's talking about? It's because she's locked into this very physical world. A little bit later in the conversation, we're going to realize that she talks about some theological kind of nuances. She demonstrates that she has an awareness of the spiritual world. But that awareness does not translate into the present moment. It has zero impact on how she actually goes about engaging other people. The center of gravity for her is a physical world. So when Jesus offers her living water, she doesn't say to him, wait, hold up, what, what are you talking about? 
Instead, she stands back from Jesus and she evaluates him. And she does so from purely a physical dimension. She gives him the once-over and says, verse 11, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. I am evaluating you on the basis of what I can see because that's the perspective on which I look out onto the world. And from a physical point of view, you have no water gathering equipment and therefore this is really not a conversation I want to have a whole lot more to do with and so she throws that little zinger at him, verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? It's a rhetorical question. She's intending to shut the conversation down. Now, if there only is the physical world, she's probably right. If the physical world is the only world that there is, she probably should end this conversation because there's really only two options at this point, given what Jesus has done. Remember, she comes along to the well and Jesus says to her, I'm thirsty, will you give me something to drink? And oh, by the way, I can give you something to drink. You think, how does that make any sense if there's only a physical world? Well, you realize there's two options. Option one, it doesn't make any sense. If you're thirsty and asking for something to drink, by definition, you don't have anything to offer to drink in return. In which case, he's telling her that he can give her something that he can't give to himself. Leads her to then start thinking, well, he's talking nonsense. You know, maybe had a little too much sun, long journey, a little bit of heat stroke here. He's talking nonsense. That's option one, Jesus is crazy if there's only a physical world. Option two, he's a con artist. He's someone who says, hey, I can give you something even better than what you can give me. Let's trade. You give me something valuable, and, and, and I'll give you something even more valuable. From where she stands, locked into a physical world, those are really her only two options, crazy guy or con man. And she basically says, I'm not having either one of them. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Let's shut this down. I'm all done. But then Jesus does something irritating. He starts talking sense. Verse 13, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That means he's not crazy. Scratch option one. Because he just said something that she knows is true. She knows that every single day she has to come back out here to this well. She knows that every single day she's thirsty. She knows by experience that the things of this world don't satisfy you for very long. It's a good thing to have water. It's a good thing to enjoy the things of this earth. But she knows from experience that this world only ever offers temporary satisfaction. It's the same thing you know as well. Why is that? It's because the earth is pointing you beyond itself to something else. When you keep having these longings inside of you, this desire that isn't satisfied fully by the things around you, it tells you that you are hungering for something that you just can't find here in the physical universe. And that only makes sense if there is more to life than just a material existence. If the physical world is all there is and you are a product of that physical world, you should expect to find total satisfaction here. The fact that no human being does points to this greater reality. 
that there is another kind of satisfaction out there that you're longing for. It tells you there's a whole other world out there, a world that you should be interested in, a world that you should be engaged in, that tells you Jesus is not crazy. He understands what it's like to live in this world. But you also realize he's not a con man because he keeps saying, I'll give this to you. Verse 10, ask, and I would have given you this gift of living water. It's a gift of God, no cost. Verse 14, I will give water that will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I'll give you water that produces life in you, and you can test it out. You don't owe me anything. You don't have to give me anything. I'll let you have this, and you can see that you're not going to be thirsty anymore. A little turn here in the conversation. He's starting to get her attention. Now, you and I have an advantage as we read this. We can slow down. We can think about what's going on. We're not trying to, in the moment, have a conversation back and forth. And you, So you can think, okay, if he's not crazy, he's not conning her, he has to be talking about a different kind of water. That means the water that he's asking for from her, this physical water, is not the same kind that he's offering to her which is what he says there in verse 14. The kind of water that I give you will well up inside of you. It'll give you eternal life. It's not any kind of water that you and I have experienced on earth. We all know what it is to be physically thirsty. We know what it is to have that physical thirst quench. We know what it is to have that physical thirst again. But he's talking about a spring of water that creates its own ongoing quenching. There's a different kind of life here that he's offering, a different kind of life that she doesn't have yet. That's the nature of what he's trying to have a conversation about. It's the nature of what he offers, something that is different from what you find in this world. That's what he thinks her biggest need is. That's what he wants to offer her more than he wants to offer her anything else. Which sounds really good. So why, point two, why would you settle for anything less? Let's go back to this woman. She's starting to get a little interested, and you can feel some of the longing she has. She even takes a risk. She says to him, verse 15, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. I'll take you up on this. I want this. You've captured my interest. What you're talking about, I, I, I'd like to have some of that. And if the sentence ended there, you would think, wow, she's getting it. She's right on the cusp of this spiritual breakthrough, this awareness that she needs a different kind of life inside of her, that all of the good things that she has in this world cannot satisfy her deepest needs. They can't fix what's wrong with her life. You think she's getting it. And then she takes this hard left turn. Give me this water so that I'll not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. What is she thinking about? Is she thinking to herself, I want to have life inside of me. Nothing I've tried gives me that. Everything that I've relied on, everything that my society has taught me to rely on, everything has let me down. So yes, I want a renewed spirit inside of me that is its own life source. Is that what she's thinking? No. What's captured her attention is, I don't ever want to come back to this place again, if that's possible. Because every time I come back to this well, it's embarrassing. 
That's why I'm here when no one else is. We touched on this last week, but think about what this experience is like for this woman. Each morning she wakes up. Day is relatively cool because the sun's only starting to come up. This is the time that the whole town gets up, and they do what? They go out to do the heavy work of getting water to the, for the day, and it's a community kind of activity. They walk down the road together, two or three at a time, who knows how many together. The community is coming together, talking together as they walk, sharing their lives back and forth. And what is she doing? She's not with them. She knows she doesn't belong, that she's not wanted. And so she waits until noon, until the sun is hot overhead, because then what? She is relatively guaranteed not to run into anybody. And she won't have to see then the way that people look at her. She won't have to see herself in someone else's eyes. Can you imagine what that experience would be like? The mile's like what? It's a, it's a mile, it's half mile out of town. What would that be like to walk down this road and have people give her those little side-eye glances as they pass? Or what's it like when they won't look at her at all, when they sneer at her? And you realize that just going to get water every day, normal daily activity, is a million little reminders of, here's how we see you. A million little reminders of the shame that you carry around. And so who knows, maybe at one time she tried. She went out with everybody else. She tried to have conversations. Have people do what? Maybe ignore her. Best be polite certainly not friendly. And so going to the well has proved to be a miserable experience. And so she would rather do it in the middle of the day by herself when no one else is around. And so this day when she meets Jesus, she gets up and she is now walking toward the well and she looks down the road and she goes, oh man, there's somebody there. Now what? Do I turn around and go back? I've already come this far. I'm just going to have to retrace my steps, come out here again. There's no guarantee someone won't be there the next time. All right, you know what? I, I'm just going to keep on going. She gets a little closer and goes, terrific. It's a guy. Like, that's what I really need. I need to be seen out here one more time with another guy because that's really what my reputation needs. Gets a little closer. It's a Jewish guy, and I'm a Samaritan. He sees me. He understands why I'm out here in the middle of the day. Now I'm really embarrassed. The only good part about this is that he won't talk to me. And then he does. And when he offers her this living water so that she'll never be thirsty again, she's thinking, hallelujah, I'll never have to be here again in my entire life. Let me have that. In other words, she's no longer trusting her socially constructed identities to keep her safe. No longer trusting them to keep her from having to deal with the shame that she feels. No longer trusting that if she just stays in her place, then other people will pretend not to notice her. Instead, now she's trusting this 
innovation thing, this new thing, this thing that I've never heard about before, this kind of living water. But if I have this new thing, wow, my life would be so good. It would insulate me from the sin and the shame and all the rest of the stuff that I have to deal with. It would save me from having to face myself. It would save me from having to deal with other people. Now, here's the really sad part about this passage. You can take Jesus out of the picture, and you can replace him with a plumber, and it would give her exactly the same thing that she's looking for right now. In her mind, indoor plumbing solves all of her problems. It would keep her from being shamed and embarrassed. Now, would indoor plumbing make her life easier? Obviously. But indoor plumbing will not solve the deeper issue of shame that's driving her to want to be tucked away, cut off from everybody else. But she would rather have that. Because if she has that, she thinks it'll make her life work. She's a little bit of a modern person in a pre-modern setting. She trusts innovation to give her a better life. It's one of our default settings as modern people. We have this overwhelming confidence in the idea of progress. The idea that new is by definition what? By definition, it's better. That the things that are old, the things that are traditional, you know, there's problems with those. We can identify those pretty easily. So if something new comes along, we believe that by definition, it's promising something better. It's this idea from the Enlightenment that since we can discover things through science and we can build technological things, things that are more efficient, that do a better job, produce a better outcome, increase the quality of things that are produced, give us greater mastery over the world, that since we can do that in the spiritual realm with spirit, uh, sorry, with physical, in the physical realm with physical stuff, that's also true of non-physical things as well with things that are tied to morality or to society. And so we have this background belief in the modern world that change is by definition inherently good, that individual and societal failings are embedded in older things, older values, older societal structures. And if you want a better tomorrow, then what you have to do is change the existing social structure and or the existing moral codes, and that whatever change you do is by definition, since it's new, going to produce something better. And so, for instance, if you live under, under a monarchy, you ask the question, do monarchies produce just and equitable societies? And the answer is no. And so as a modern person, you think, okay, well, let's do something. Let's replace that. Let's replace it with a democracy. Only then you discover that democracies don't produce just and equitable societies. So what do you do? Change your belief in the nature of the problem? Be willing to admit that maybe solutions that only come from this physical world are inadequate to address the real problems of humanity. Is that what you do? No. You say, okay, we, we, we just didn't yet find the best societal structure. We're still progressing. 
And so you start twiddling around with it a little bit. We'll keep this piece of capitalism, add this little bit of socialism, we'll just keep playing with it. Because as long as we can identify that there is something wrong, we can say, hey, here's the new thing, and that new thing will fix the old thing and will be better. That idea of progress, that idea of new, is shot through all of us as modern people. It's the world we live in. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about political systems and economic systems, you can talk about morality. Does Victorian prudery generate sexually whole and healthy people? No. Well then what? Let's have something new. Let's start experimenting with sexual freedom. Let's experiment with multiple varieties of sexual freedom and see how that works. And it doesn't matter if there is no evidence for new being helpful or not. Let's just try something new because by definition, new has to be better than what we've had before and the problems that came along with that. Now, can new sometimes generate an easier life? Yeah, it can. It's nice to have modern conveniences. But there are things that new and progress can't do. And that is that they can't help you understand why there was a problem in the first place. They can describe the problem, they can talk about contributing factors to the problem, but they can't eradicate the problem. They can't tell you why it was there. And yet we have incredible confidence, that's why it's a belief, incredible confidence that new is better even when there's no evidence for it. Let me give you a very concrete example uh, in the world of hard physical things. Because our background beliefs don't just influence things like morality, they influence all of life, including our technologies. They get embedded in our technologies. So think with me here. When you market something, can you market it by saying, hey, we haven't changed this thing for 10 years. You should get one. You realize, no, that's silly. Nobody says that. Why? In our world, given the underlying background belief, what you have to do is tell people, no, this is better. It's improved. It's new. Or at least you have to convince people that the thing has somehow made progress so that in some sense it's better than what it was before. I was in my office several years ago. Sally dropped by in the morning. She said, um, I think the dryer died. So I go down to the basement and check, and yes, the dryer has died. And you do a little bit of research and you realize, okay, 14-year-old dryers, they don't owe you anything. So it's time to get a new dryer. Now, when we bought this dryer, it was probably about 20 years ago. We didn't buy the very bottom end model, but we weren't a whole lot further up either. And so, you know, we spent several hundred dollars on a dryer. Here's my naivete, because I don't keep up with dryer prices. I am blown away, 14 years later, that the average dryer prices are now in the $800, $900 range. And I'm absolutely stunned by this. I'm thinking, well, what, what are these doing that the former ones didn't, that they're now three times as much? It was really amazing. At that time, you could actually find dryers for $1,500, $2,000. You know, that's common now. Again, this is stunning to me at the time. And you're thinking, is it folding the clothes and putting them away? All right, so this is what I do when I don't know what I'm doing. I do research. So I pull up Consumer Reports, and they list down all the dryers. 
and they tell you, here's how we went about rating them. And the very first column is, here's how well they actually dry clothes. You think, okay, that's a good benchmark for a dryer. Here's how well it dries. And I kid you not, you can go back for several years, they all look this way. Every single dryer is rated excellent for drying clothes. And you think, wait, I don't, I, I don't understand this. If they're all excellent, what's all the difference and why are they so expensive? Now, what does excellent mean? Excellent means that the clothes come out a little less wet than they were when they went in. And it means that they do it really, really well. And all of these say they're excellent, which means they're all doing this really, really well. What's going on here? So Sally and I go off to two different stores, and a guy in each store, I'm assuming they did not talk to each other, guy in each store tell us exactly the same thing. They show us the million-dollar dryers, and then they do one of these very quiet, understated things. They glance down the line of dryers to the cheaper end, and they say, you know, a dryer is really the simplest appliance in the home. It's basically a box of hot that the clothes run around in. The basic models do exactly the same thing as the upper-end models. Now I'm really curious to think, okay, well, <laughs> what am I getting then if I spend, and I'm not going to, but what do, what do I get if I spend a million dollars on a dryer? And as you look into this, you realize you get an onboard computer. It has 14 different pre-programmed settings for drying your clothes. All kinds of settings that you can change and different information will give you. It'll tell you about the lint. It tells you about all these other kinds of things. And you think, I don't want to launch a satellite. I, I just want the clothes to be dry. And then there's this really bizarre setting. If 14 pre-programmed setting, settings is not exactly what you need for your clothes, you can program your own setting. I think, I, ju I, I just don't want to spend that kind of quality time with my dryer. What do you need all of that for? Because new is better. And you have to upgrade. And you have to have new. It's one of the persistent background beliefs in Western society. Something that is unproven, something, frankly, that is unprovable, but it's broadly assumed that somehow older ideas and values are simply not as good as newer ones. That anything that you can label as traditional is the same as saying it's no longer any good, it's outdated. It's outlived its usefulness. And that anything innovative or different should be tried despite there being no evidence that it's better simply because it's new because we are absolutely confident that progress will save us. Only if you look back over the last hundred years, you realize that the evidence is against the theory. Wars, poverty, genocide, injustice, racism, abuse, those are just as much with us now as they've ever been. Which is when you realize that while scientific progress has some benefits, it really can make life easier on you. The underlying idea of progress as the way that the universe moves forward has severe limitations. That theory cannot account for why evil exists in the first place, for why people are ugly to each other. It can't tell you how evil originated. It can't help you understand why evil is still with us, despite all of our progress. And it can't tell you why it's so widespread throughout the human race. It can't explain the existence of evil, the persistence of evil, 
or the prevalence of evil. And yet, modern people continue to hang our hope on some vague, nebulous future as something that will save and rescue us from everything that's wrong with ourselves and wrong with our world. And this lady believes that. Give me this water that I've never, ever heard of before. And if I have this water, I just know my life will be good. In other words, she's still missing the point. She thinks she can manage her sinfulness and her shame on her own. All she needs is a little innovation, little modernization from the traveling plumbing salesman, and it'll turn her life around. It's point two. It's why we're willing to settle for less than what Jesus offers. Point three. Put yourself here in Jesus' shoes. He's been on this long journey. He's tired. It's hot. He's thirsty. And he sees somebody in trouble, someone who's locked into her own way of thinking, and so he engages her. But she's not listening to him. Now, this is God talking with an image of God who, verse 10, doesn't recognize him, who starts to argue with him, who misunderstands him, and eventually mocks him. Now, you've probably had that experience in some way or other this past week. I regularly have experiences of this. You've probably tried to enter into someone else's world. You saw something that you thought they really needed to see, and you actually thought you had some wisdom to offer them, and they completely blow you off. And they tell you why you really don't need to tell them what you did in the first place. Now, when that happens to me, my temptation is to turn bitter. What's bitter look like? Well, bitter can be a lot of different things. Bitter is when you just want to cut the other person off and you want to ignore them, have nothing to do with them. Bitter is when you stop caring about what the other person's life is like. Bitter is when you take that other person mentally and you move them out of the friend category, out of the neutral category, and you put them into the enemy category. Because when they're in the enemy category, you no longer have to talk to them. Now you can talk about them. Or you can create these wonderful arguments and conversations in your mind where you are putting them in their place. Bitter is when you are tempted to pray against them instead of against the enemy that's trying to put space in between you and this other person. If you think about that list, you realize that Jesus is not giving you any evidence of anything on that list. In other words, Jesus is engaging this woman who ignores him, blows him off, mocks him, and he's not bitter. And when I see that, I get really excited because if he's not bitter with her, that means he's not bitter with me. And that means then I can go to him with confidence when I'm bitter. That, that, that boggles my mind. That I can be bitter against someone, and in that moment, he's not bitter against me. Instead, I can come to him, and I can say, this is wrong. I am wrong. And I don't know what to do with this, and I want it gone. And somehow, Jesus, if you're not bitter right now, then the life that you said you would put inside of me, that living water, that means that I can have that kind of life right now, too. I don't know how that's possible. I almost kind of don't believe it is. But I understand that that's what you're offering me, a life where I'm not bitter, and I want that. And it's amazing to me. It doesn't happen in minutes often. It doesn't happen permanently. I have to keep coming back to him. 
But it amazes me when that person is no longer in the enemy category anymore. That's amazing when the bitterness is gone. And you realize that's what Jesus promised, real life bubbling up inside of you. How do you get that? Look again at what he's doing here. He says to this woman, verse 16, go call your husband. And you think, Jesus, what are you doing? You just put your finger on, on that sore spot, that spot she doesn't want to have anybody know about. Why, why did you do that? You trying to embarrass her? Read the rest of the sentence. Go call your husband and come here. Come here. Come back. Come back, you, image of God that I made, who doesn't recognize me, who misunderstands me, who mocks me. Come back. That's what I want. That's why I came to earth. That's why I'm sitting down out here. That's why I'm talking to you about the gift of God. I'm making you this offer that you can have real life inside of you. Come back. I want you. But to come back, you have to bring all of you, including the parts that are shameful. You can't say to me, Jesus, I'm, here, here I am, all 97% of me, just not this piece. Jesus says, come back with everything, including with what shames you. Why? Because it's that piece that actually keeps you from me. And it's that piece that I entered into this world to take away from you. Now, if you're reading the book sequentially, maybe you would think back to John chapter 1 at this moment, where a guy named John the Baptist sees Jesus from a little ways away, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is making an offer to this woman. He's saying, I didn't come to just take away the sin of the Jews. I came to take away the sin of the Jews and the Samaritans sin of the Jews, the Samaritans, and the suburbanites. I came to take away your shame, not just so that you could find a place to hide. I came to take that shame away so there's nothing keeping us apart from each other. This is where Jesus is driving with the woman. He wants her to know him, to be connected to him, wants her to have the gift of God, to have life inside, and for that to happen... He came to take away her sin and shame, just like he came to take away yours and mine. We're about to share communion. It's a meal for people who have asked this kind of God inside of you, who have asked for this kind of life. It's for people who bring 100% of themselves to him. So I'm going to invite you to take a few minutes to pray. Our praise team is going to come back and play. Take a few minutes to pray to make sure that you bring all of you to Christ. I know I'm not the only person in this room who saw things in me this last week, sin and shame, things that I'd really rather no one else saw. Bring those things to Christ right now. Talk to him about them. Ask him to forgive you and to stir up that living water inside of you. Lord Jesus, we bring our hearts to you because you have brought yourself to us. And Lord, we confess that we have not done the things that we should have done this week. We have done things that we should not have done this week. 
And we trust, Lord, that what you said counts for us. That you would pay for those. That you would in return give us your righteousness. That we could stand before you unashamed because you were willing to take our punishment, absorb our shame, and that there isn't anyone who will ever accuse us before the Father. Lord, I pray that as we come to you, you would make that reality deeper in our hearts and that you would conform the way that we live the way that we talk, the things that we do, that you would conform that to a, the truth of what you've done for us and in us. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that we can share today knowing that you are here with us. In Jesus' name.